Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Kate Wolf, our Editor at Large. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Today we have an interview with actor and director Sean Penn, talking about his newest role as the author of the novel, Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff, a sardonic take on the absurdity of contemporary culture published by Atria Books and Simon & Schuster. So this was actually a different type of interview for us. Because right? we had an international celebrity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also a kind of first-time novelist, which is yeah. like, well, I guess we've had first-time novelists before, yeah, um, but not but, somebody whose career has so dramatically been right, defined in another medium. Not someone who's got two Oscars under his belt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, it was very exciting to have Sean Penn here. And I have to say that his book is not what you'd expect. It's a wild read, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I thought it was interesting to hear that basically the book was at least initially a kind of attempt to intervene a little bit in the discourse around the election. And then you can really feel the kind of political weight that he's struggling with in terms of contemporary culture and like where culture is going as you read through the novel. And he gets into that a little bit in the interview. Yeah. It was cool to have him here. Let's listen. All right. Let's get to it. We have Sean Penn with us in the studio today. Sean is an actor, writer, producer, and director whose work includes Academy Award-winning performances in Milk and Mystic River, as well as Academy Award-nominated performances in Dead Man Walking, Sweet and Lowdown, and I Am Sam. Most recently, Sean is the author of Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff, his first novel, published in March by Atria from Simon & Schuster. Welcome to the show, Sean. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so first, I want to talk just a little bit about the context of how this project rolled out, because pretty soon, late November, so after the election in 2016, there was an audiobook that was offered for free, still I believe is available for free, of Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff, starring yourself as the narrator and Pappy Pariah as the author. But now we have Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff, and as many people suspected, you are the author. So can you talk about a little bit of the how the project rolled out? Yeah, it was actually made available before the election. Oh, was it? Okay. The, the reviews must have come out in November. Vain hope that it might affect some people's feelings about who they were voting for or, and so on. Mm. It clearly didn't have the impact that I'd hoped. <laughs> well, um, you and a thousand other factors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gave it a shot. Yeah. It was one of the active measures in the wrong direction. It worked uh, for me the way that some films might workshop a movie at Sundance for a period of time before mm, they'd okay. to do the audible version, which was not a novel. It was really kind of a, a short, whispered dream. And... I was not happy with it that way because I realized I was finally writing free of film and mm -hmm. wanted other people to read it for themselves. I didn't like voicing it for people. And so Audible was kind enough to take it down when Atria agreed to publish a full volume version of it. So I went back and wrote what then became the novel of it. 
Can you talk a little bit about that switching between <coughs> mediums? That's, I mean, I'm fascinated in kind of the limitations that each aesthetic form presents to representation. And so kind of what was it that a novel, and as you're saying, you kind of were writing this free of film, like what was it that a novel gave you purchase on as an aesthetic form for you to talk about versus like what, you know, all the work that you've done in film and performance? Well, it's free of one's own face. I think that's why I didn't like doing the audible version, that there is something in the way the words came to me while I was writing that I wanted to be forced and ultimately was once I went into the novel form to make it available to be clear. I tend to communicate things or write things on a first draft that are expected to be understood or felt by osmosis, kind of a shorthand that has nothing but you know, failed expectation in it. Yeah. And so I had the framework of the melody of the piece, and I knew what it was about, but it was now time to go and, you know, exercise the discipline to be able to share it. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Bob Honey and how this character came to you, and who is this crazy guy? Well, there had been, I had, since I was much too young to for it to be valid, been offered over the years several opportunities to write a memoir. And it never felt like something I wanted to do. And then I was traveling a few years ago, and I saw a contemporary of mine in the acting field had written a memoir. I picked it up and I read it. For me, it was sort of an embarrassment to read something from somebody of my own era because I felt, you know, those of us lucky enough to get to 77, maybe, but 57, a little early on this one. But I did know that I had a lot of rich opportunities in my life and that some of them were beginning to get less fresh. And so I sort of mm -hmm. thought maybe I would figure out something where I could at least use them. And when I started exaggerating and recreating them in my own head, I started to see rather than me, it became this character, Bob. And so it was kind of written as a, you know, a waking dream of what I was thinking about the American man's plight might be today. For listeners who've not heard about the novel, will you tell us a little bit about what the story is? Well, Bob Honey is that fellow on the street nobody knows. The house they skip on Halloween. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what the kids would consider the boogeyman of the street. He moves in mysterious ways and at mysterious times. He seems to have no friends, gets very little mail. So we see that and then wonder, what does he do? And kind of go into the God's Lonely Man territory. And out of that, you f find a person who is a uh, adept in engineering, physics, geology, clearly has had international travels to some end and also had a very successful septic tank pumping business <laughs> and construction business with a monopoly on the uh, Jehovah's Witness community where he made a lot of money. So he lives humbly, but may have means. And he's responding to the loss of his own innocence and in trying to reconnect with human beings, in particular in love with a woman. And in that pursuit to reconnect, he is also finding himself having to define his purpose, which he finds in his work, and his work requires the use of a mallet and culling 
the elderly who have are taking up space in a world of branding. <laughs> if you couldn't that- tell, there is a dystopian thread inside of this novel, particularly so the dispatch program for the elderly is called the Scottsdale Project, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm wondering, so much of the novel is about reading this contemporary moment and through a kind of a unique everyman figure. Like he has very particular experiences. So he's not just kind of absolutely any kind of guy, but he is like you're saying, the kind of guy on the street that nobody really notices until they start, the nosy neighbors start really noticing him. So what kind of does that character allow you to get purchase on? Because there is a real critique here, I think, of not only the kind of past militarism of the U.S. government. That's one strain of it. But there's also a real critique of contemporary culture, right? Like the Instagram culture, the phone-mediated culture. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you're trying to process in the novel? You know, I think what was starting to drive me a little crazy was the lack of spotlight on complicity, that there mm. we had a culture of complaint, certainly on the left or the middle, and to some degree on the right, about the candidate that might have inspired the candidate in my book who was running for president at the time, and I gather who later ended up in the White House. Yeah. And I think the less spoken of problem were those who had, either by complacency or activity, put him in that position, us, and how we had kind of degenerated into a level of celebrity love that reached its peak in putting him there and then coming to a point where the value of celebrityism becomes the poison that we're going to have to reset our clock to. And so all of this could drive a person mad. And I thought if I could write the dream in such a way that would make me giggle, (laughs) that it might be useful medicine to others too. It's interesting hearing celebrity in this context become a political liability, right? Where there is some kind of, that we have to pay some price for the way that we treat celebrity. In thinking about this, is there a way in which you've started thinking about your own celebrity, your own work that has become, that has become difficult or that maybe the book has let you work through? I mean, I think that uh, the focus on those who focus on themselves has always been a vulnerability. That where we've taken it today, both you know, with all of the electronic mediums and so on, where de- democratization of a voice with you know these Twitters and Instagrams and all of this stuff seems in cultures of great need to be very productive, and in comfort cultures or comfort cultures within other dynamics like the United States has a very broad comfort culture, as well as those who are left behind. And within the the usage of social media and so on, it is most typically misused and becomes the white noise where nothing can come through the filter and rise up unconditioned by it. So I think that this book, Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff, is the man who does have a kind of moral compass despite some of the things that he does that are clearly morally questionable, but believe that they're necessary to keep the future alive. So I don't think that I, you know, live in a a universe alone of that thought. And in writing a book, I really hoped that it would be something very shareable, but the relief of it not being a film was the relief of not having 
any money involved in the creation of it. There was, you know, if mm -hmm. a publisher said yes, they were saying yes to essentially a finished manuscript. Mm -hmm. And then if it worked for their company or it didn't work for their company, that was the gamble they chose with full knowledge. And mm -hmm. that's different than film where you, mm -hmm. you promise a vision and you may be disappointing your financiers with fulfilling that vision. Right. It also seems that the book is so playful in a way that I don't, it would be hard to translate this book into film, for instance, because there's a lot of play with words and there are footnotes and the story kind of takes flight in a way that it wouldn't track necessarily in film. I'm wondering, have you worked on other novels in the past or books in the past? Has this been a silent passion of yours or is this really your first time trying to write a novel? I think the closest exercise to that. It's my first time trying to run a novel, but I've adapted nonfiction books into screenplays. And in one case, I had read the nonfiction book I adapted 10 years before I started writing and then did not reread it until after I had finished the screenplay. So it was a kind of story floating in my head. It was not an original story. In fact, it wasn't an original story to the book. It was a true story. But a first pass of it was very freewheeling. And I think that where I was when I started Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff was having digested the kind of joy of that experience of that first pass on that screenplay where I could just feel like I was dreaming in the daytime and dream myself. And I'm a person who can always be accused of thinking that he's funny. I laugh at uh, <laughs> my thoughts a lot. And so I figured, well, let me just test the metal of this and let that go. Be completely free with that and uh, see what it brings me in that became this book. Did you struggle at any point in the, because I imagine that on the one hand, it must be totally freeing, not just from what you were saying before in terms of being freed from the image, moving from film, but also being freed of the necessary teamwork that it's not that writing doesn't include teamwork, but in a film, you've got all system of people that are involved, even at the writing process sometimes. So like here, did you feel a kind of freedom with just sitting down and I'm just writing the novel where it's kind of unidirectional in a sense, even as you have like, you know, I'm sure people looking at it and, you know, every writer has people that gives them feedback. But did you find that process freeing or was it ever a struggle to kind of be just there alone with the work? Yeah, my recent professional engagements in film over the last few years led me to accept that I have become, if I had not always been, someone who does not play well with others. <laughs> okay. And that was another reason I wanted to, you know, when you're, when you're feeling that, it becomes a bit unfair to be present. Those forms, film for sure, all the work is in that direction. All the work is in supporting what the other people are doing and, yeah. and combining those things. And when that becomes work, it had not always been. But when it becomes work and it's uh, making you unhappy to be at that job, then at, you know, now at 56 when I started writing this book or 55, whatever I was, I think I just came to accept that I have graduated to being somebody who does not play well with others. And so this was a joy to do. In many ways, that's also how Bob Honey is. And I think that there's the kind of, he's not exactly a loner, but he keeps to himself, you know, and he's alone with his thoughts a lot. And I'm wondering, does he have, there's a dark vision in this novel and a serious critical strain. Is there any kind of space for hope, I think, for Bob Honey or for as you were processing some of your own thoughts through this novel? Do you have any kind of hope for getting out of the type of quagmire that ends up getting described in the novel? 
Well, I think what he represents is a resistance to groupthink. And I think what we're looking at now in many of the big stories, those that are being discussed in mainstream American media, is the encouragement of groupthink, the embracement of it, and the punishment for not participating in it or for questioning it. The term healthy skepticism is like a concealed weapon that seems to be made illegal. The proportionality of what we know and what we hear and the way things are reported is really much more to do with a fashion than it is the legitimate pieces of any movement. I don't see leadership in many of the movements that gives me hope. I do see that if, for example, you know, we've, I think, all seen these extraordinary kids in Parkland. Yeah. And I think that if they, with those who are supporting them, I understand the founders of the Women's March are working with them, that if the issues that they take on become holistic, that it starts with gun control, but that they are able to also remind the world what's happening in Yemen, to remind the world about environmental issues, all of the things about poverty issues in the United States, about health care. If these people combine and that becomes a coalition about getting people into the election booth, there is hope. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Sean Penn, author of Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff. We return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have a couple of exciting announcements. This is LARB Radio's Dan Lopez, and I'm here to tell you about a fun opportunity this coming weekend. Check out Lambda LitFest LA. It returns for a second year with a preview weekend, April 14th through the 15th. We have a great lineup of programming prepared for you, including a discussion with presidential inaugural poet Richard Blanco in conversation with fellow Cuban-American author Eduardo Santiago. We have a submission workshop facilitated by women who submit and a panel discussion about writing queer characters for the screen featuring Michelle Badillo from One Day at a Time, Brittany Nichols from Transparent and Suicide Kale, and Jen Richards from Her Story and I Am Kate. It's all free and open to the public. Lambda Lit Fest LA takes place in the central LA Hollywood area. You can find out more information by visiting lambdalitfest.org. Again, that's lambdalitfest.org. Thanks, and hope to see you there. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.com. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sean Penn, author of Bob Honey, Who Just Do Stuff. Bringing up those extraordinary kids, I was always wonder about how a writer grows into himself, and something that you were also talking about. What kind of reader were you as a kid? Were you also a writer as a kid? What is your relationship with books? I was a very sporadic reader as a kid. And then in my once reading was not mandatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I got out of high school, I got uh, I fell in love with books and that, uh, initially fiction books mm-hmm. um, and kind of ate them. I also started at the time writing poetry, but I was aware that I was beginning to become a known person in America and that it was a very narrow optic that that one wanted to work in so as to you know, have a credibility in the field they chose. We were not mm. a, a, right. a culture promoting Renaissance people. Yes. <laughs> and I just, just shut up and dribble. Yeah, so right. I started getting, you know, my writerly stuff out in foreign poetry journals when I was in my early 20s. And then I moved on and I, and I started to, you know, write screenplays. And as soon as you start, I think as soon as one starts to write, they start recognizing like I got to start exercising tomorrow or I've got to quit cigarettes tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I've got to start writing my novel tomorrow. <laughs> and once you get fed up with hearing that in your ear, you start writing your novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that almost sounds like a vice that you have to get under control. Yeah. Well, it, that's a, it, that could describe almost anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems that being an actor, is, it would afford you a perfect opportunity to read and write in some ways, but then because of the narrow confines of how you're perceived or actors not really having the freedom to do things that maybe other people might or that we don't, like you say, promote a renaissance approach to the arts, it actually ends up being kind of hard to do anything else besides your job without receiving a lot of criticism. And you've received criticism for kind of doing other things Mm -hmm. recently. How do you deal with that? Or what's your answer to that? How do you have the courage to keep on doing things? Well, let's bring that just to, to this book. So in following up on the previous question, the fiction reading moved me very much in the direction in the last 20 years to almost exclusively nonfiction. Hmm. with, you know, a great book. Cormac McCarthy put out a book. I probably pick it up and read it. This, but I'm very selective and, and, and I'm very, you know, my interest is selective in that. I think that I've gotten to a point where, and probably would not have written the book yet until I got to a point where I could bring you back to a series of influential moments on this. I'm aware of the fog in the culture, and the, and the expectations and the criticisms that are kind of waiting. And I expect to have to earn an audience's trust as a writer. Mm. What will happen with this first book is only key to me in the sense of I'd like the idea of continuing to write this character. Mm. And unlikely if this book doesn't sell that I'd find a, a publishing deal <laughs> to continue this character. But I'm at a place in life where I won't be aware of the criticism I'm not a guy who Google alerts himself or or talks to many people who do. And so it is possible still to shield yourself that stuff. Mm. And 
you know, it's kind of like anything else in life. When it's hard, you don't have to walk. You just fall forward and don't, you know, and use your feet to keep your head from hitting the ground. That's a nice way of thinking about it. (laughs) Can we talk about, I mean, I know you were saying that you kind of were very selective in your fiction reading as you you move forward and kind of really embraced nonfiction. Can you talk about any kind of like in fiction or nonfiction, just stylists that you really enjoy? And that because the novel itself is so stylized, like it has a very clear voice and there's kind of like shades of Pynchon comes to mind, um, Burroughs in some senses, also Hunter S. Thompson. Like who are the kind of prose stylists that you really like? You know, and for a person like me with my background to get to a point where I I can say out loud, I'm going to write a novel, Mm -hmm. I will have to be free to define a novel on my own terms. If mm-hmm. if I'm trying to raise myself to that which is, you know, commonly considered the form mm-hmm. or the art of the novel, that's going to leave me out. Okay. I don't have those skills. So I think probably the single biggest uh, engineer of the prison break of that would have been David Foster Wallace. Hmm. Interesting. I can pick up Infinite Jest anytime I get concerned that I'm going too far afield. In my own writing, yeah, I I can just pick that off the bookshelf, blindly pick a page, start reading it. And it says, okay, I this much sense I can make. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's great. That's a high bar, David Foster Wallace. Well, is a, is I, a high by bar no means am I comparing my skill sets to his, but 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 just only using him as an example of of that which confirms my freedom. He gives you permission. Yeah, I was going to say he's permission. a writer that is was sadly totally liberated in that sense. He was going to write something the way that he wanted to with all the thick detail that you could get into. If you want to follow the footnotes, if you don't, you know, he kind of, it's a pure vision. I can see that as like being particularly freeing. Mm. And what do you think marked your transition from fiction into nonfiction as a reader? Why, why did you feel like suddenly you were really drawn to nonfiction instead? I think, and and this may you know, bring up another question about why a novel now. I think we have so diluted the specialness of any creative work. Mm. The girl I fell in love with was a dark movie theater with strangers in it, with material, with filmmakers and actors who were doing something that in the first 10 minutes I knew as I looked to my right or my left at the silhouette of a stranger that 40 years from that, we will all in this room remember that scene. Mm-hmm. We'll remember the name of this movie, that's for sure. And it will have somehow given us change in life. And that, it, that they created, whether they were a dark film or a very s- hopeful film, it created a hope of a possibility, as any kind of great art does. When they broke those theaters down into the multiplexes and when, you know, even by going to the candy counter, you were no longer in the club of of the story of your movie because you got Terminator 42 people coming in and this one (laughs) going over. That that crowd (laughs) breaks a little of the spell. Mm. And then when it comes to going online and people watching films composed for the big screen on computers or on their telephone, where almost all of the brilliant content has drifted to television and, and only Cirque du Soleil is left to the big screen. Um, I've just gotten completely overwhelmed. I don't know where to find 
a shared specialness. We're to see something. I may see something wonderful, but I don't have any sense that it's going to rise up and be something that gives me commonality with other people because they're busy watching, binge watching 250 television shows that I've never seen or heard of. I don't know the movie scene today. I don't know, you know, I know that they had the Oscars on last night and I heard a couple of the highlights. I, I didn't have confined the interest to watch it largely because I'd not seen any of the films. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I think I've just gotten so far away from that that when I'm in my life interested in fiction these days, it's when I'm walking through an airport and there's the bookstore and I see something interesting and I say, I want to see what kind of world this can put me in. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where wh- what the life of books is today. I don't know, you know how long bookstores are going to be here and all, all of that. And, and I wouldn't want to ever read a book on a Kindle. And, and with this, I, having tried it, I realized I wouldn't want anybody to read it with the voice you're currently listening to. Mm. I really like the idea of, for what it's worth, throwing it out there in the world and hoping people get to have that private experience that doesn't depend on the group in the theater. Mm -hmm. You say that you want to continue writing the character of Bob Honey. What do you think is next for him? Uh, What do you foresee happening with with Bob in the future? I can tell you, while I don't do social media or a whole lot of other stuff on my cellular phone, Uh I do make a lot of notes in it. Uh But I I think that the answer to the question would fall into the category of that would be telling. (laughs) Well, we'll have to uh, to look out for the next installment of Bob Honey. All right, let's do that. So we will end it there. Thank you so much, Sean Penn. Uh, We've been speaking with Sean Penn, author of Bob Honey, Who Just Do Stuff, out now from Atria Books. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.